I don't know if you're familiar, but honey fraud is a thing. Honey is the third most fraudulent food in the planet. And there are groups that are blending and heating honey to increase yield. When you have 70% of the commodity itself is fraudulent, it puts a lot of pressure on the producers because it's like this race to the bottom prices. So if you have that much fraudulent honey flooding the markets, pushing down prices, you become very dependent on other income streams. And so you have this unfortunate situation where being a beekeeper in the United States is very, very difficult because honey is not your main income source any longer. And what is, is this pollination services, which again, doesn't create the best beekeeping practices. And that's what sets our brand apart is that we've identified and created what we consider regenerative apiculture, so regenerative beekeeping practices. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Douglas Raggio, founder of Pass the Honey. It's absurdly good. Douglas joins us from Encinitas, California. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. We cannot understate the crucial part honeybees play in pollination and eventually the food supply in our world, our planet. Some farmers believe that when they have native bees on their farms, their outputs actually increase. Yes, bees are crucial to a healthy ecosystem. In the United States in particular, we have a predominance of monocrops supporting our food supply. So there is an absence of native forage zone. So with that, there's an absence of native pollinators. So they have to supplement that with managed honeybees in a kind of a rent-to-hive business. So if you can have a diverse ecosystem with ample forage while also producing, which is kind of the thesis of regenerative agriculture, it's not a monocrop system, it's a diverse ecosystem that mimics nature as nature was intended. So yes, when there is biodiversity and there is forage zone for native pollinators, you should see increased crop yields because that's how that's a healthy ecosystem. So what you're saying is that farmers bring in native bees to help pollination because they're absent in our ecosystem right now. They don't bring in native bees, they bring in managed hives. Nearly every commercial beekeeper in the United States does what's called pollination services. That is the majority of their revenue is trucking their bees around the United States to pollinate monocrops, which unfortunately exposes the bees to stress from transport, disease and pathogens from just being around other bees, and uh, theft, and then pesticides. So there's this dependency financially of beekeepers on pollination services that is not the best practices for beekeeping. I don't know if you're familiar, but honey fraud is a thing. Honey is the third most fraudulent food in the planet. And there are groups that are blending and heating honey to increase yield. So let's start with what are the different types of bees we have? That's probably a three-week-long seminar. You could go through UC Davis Pollination School. But uh, Give me the Cliff Notes version of it. Butterflies are pollinators. Look at pollinators, then we look at honeybees. Like honeybees is our concern, but how honeybees interact with native pollinators, which are, there's burrowing bees, there's stingless bees, there's bumblebees, 
but honeybee is the one that is crucial to our food system in the U.S. That's because of that monocrop culture. We don't have a food system without managed hives pollinating monocrops. So most every beehive in the United States that's commercially managed ends up in California pollinating the almond orchards. That's just one of the big accounts. So you get every bee in the United States going to you know Central California at one time a year, and that's where you know God forbid one hive has a pathogen or a varroa mite. It starts to just snowball. Kind of like kids at preschool, right? One kid gets sick, they all get sick, and then they take it to their homes. So that's, we're trying to change that. This is the first time I had heard about beekeepers moving their hives to pollinate the crops. Yeah. You can't make money selling honey in the United States. It is not a viable business because of the fraud. When we test, so we use something called nuclear magnetic resonance testing. It's the highest level testing you can possibly do for any food currently. Not cheap, not easy. So when we tested the majority of honeys at retail, so all the jars on shelf, 70% came back with some form of adulteration. And that could either be heating and blending, blending of other syrups and sugars, or it could be feeding the bees sugar water during flow, which is an artificial adulteration on the feed side. When you have 70% of the commodity itself is fraudulent, it puts a lot of pressure on the producers because it's like this race to the bottom prices. So if you have that much fraudulent honey flooding the markets, pushing down prices, you become very dependent on other income streams. And so you have this unfortunate situation where being a beekeeper in the United States is very, very difficult because honey is not your main income source any longer. And what is, is this pollination services, which again, doesn't create the best beekeeping practices. And that's what sets our brand apart is that we've identified and created what we consider regenerative apiculture, so regenerative beekeeping practices, together with UC Davis, UCLA, a couple other brands to bring one, honeybee health to the forefront, also beekeeper livelihoods to the forefront because they go hand in hand, and then healthy ecosystems. So without compromising any one or the, over the other. And that's where there's a true ecological balance, a different business model to be had. And what's driving that is our honeycomb. We have to re-educate the consumer about honey fraud, about beekeeper you know, wages, about you know, honeybee health. Let our listeners understand the whole honey-making process. At least I have very elementary knowledge about how the honey is made. To give us a, an overview of how the whole process happens. I don't know the science, and I don't know if many people do. Um, how bees communicate is fascinating, and no one really knows how they do it. There's an elegance with our product where we want to serve the highest level honeycomb possible. We have this product that is honeycomb, right? And the best honeycomb comes from the best forage zone. Unlike a crop or a livestock, we have like a two-foot radius that has a six or two foot square, the beehive, that has a six mile radius of pollination. And so when you get to like, you talk about how bees create honey and what it, it's really a radius and an ecosystem consideration. So what a bee does is we have our hive on this beehive, so it's two foot square roughly. The bees will go out and forage and that means look for food, quality so, uh, sources of pollen. And let's say one bee, we'll call him Harold. Harold finds a great pollen source on some flower, some direction, some distance. Harold comes back to the hive and does what's called a waggle dance. And it's a two-dimensional plane because it's on the honeycomb, right? It's on the frame. And it waggles up and turns one direction or the other. And whatever radius that is, and then how vigorous it waggles, 
communicates to the other bees who form a dance circle essentially around him. And it tells them the direction, the quality, the distance, and how much honey they need to consume to get there and back with a full load of pollen. Nobody understands how that even works. They call it the waggle dance. And it's like this amazing conundrum. And so then the other bees go out there and they find that source that Harold communicated to them. They load up on their honey before they go, they bring back a full load of pollen and then they process it in the hive and they store it in the honey cells, which has a different part of the hive structure. You know, the honey storage, it's their fuel storage for the winter. So when they, you know, during spring, they go out and they're pollinating and creating ecosystem diversity and making flowers bloom and all that stuff. And then in the winter, come fall, they have their honey storage. So that's kind of the the rough pathway of how honey is produced. And it's when I go back to kind of the product and the, the ecosystems, we have to be very particular around where our radius is. We can't be anywhere near any industrial pesticides. We can't be downwind. It isn't just our beekeeping practice to make sure our, our honeybee health is high. It's the geographical you know, land management practices. It's the wind patterns that go into that because we can't be downwind from any sort of spray because the bees pick that up on the flowers. It gets put into the honey. It gets put into the wax. And then here we are just cutting the wax and serving it. So it's this. I've yet in food, I've been in this industry for 15 years roughly. I have yet to see a more elegant product. Our product is our purpose and our purpose is our product. And our purpose is honeybee health, vibrant ecosystems, and beekeeper livelihood. And all those are contingent because we're not, we don't have a manufacturing process. The bees do it. We're just making sure we're managing those hives and getting the best forage zone to produce the best honey for hive health. And then we take a portion of that. How do they do it in the wild? They, they produce hives. They just aren't in a, a box. They'll put a hive in a tree. But this is, again, this is honeybees. Other pollinators just run around and pick things up and eat off flowers and pollinate naturally. A honeybee creates the storage and then they queen and then they swarm and they're just a different society. They organize differently. But how they do it in the nature, I think they just flutter. So how do they make the bee wax? I'm like just very confused about how they build it. Like how do they build the bee wax? How do they make the honey? I get the pollen. It's an enzyme. So there are two things that I don't understand about bees. And again, I've never, I don't think there's much clarity around it. So first of all, the queen does one maiden breeding flight and she gets all the male sperm, if you will, in one flight. And then she can direct if she wants to lay a drone, a queen, she dictates male, female. So when she's laying eggs, she can actually control what kind of egg she's putting in a cell. So she can create the next hive. So when that, when her and her hive swarm, she leaves the hive behind with a new set of like new bees. And it's a full army, if you will. And the other thing is, is that the bees can regurgitate, for lack of a better term, wax or honey. And I don't think anybody understands how the difference is made. Just like they don't understand how the queen can direct what type and what sex of eggs she's laying, but she does. Hence the word queen bee. Yeah, she's the queen. Yeah, it's bees are fascinating and there's so much. I never thought I'd be in this industry and I never thought that it's like an endless learning. Most times when I do research, I spend a few hours. I kind of grasp what the guest is going to talk about. And I spent like a couple of days dabbling to understand, <laughs> to understand what exactly and how exactly the bees perform. And then you asked me to try to find research that no one knows answers to. <laughs> so I'm glad that it was just not me. It's fascinating. They are insects and they do what they do and it's not fully understood. It's not understood how they communicate. It's not understood how a queen makes her next hive. 
it's not understood how they truly create the honey. They know about like behavioral type stuff of how they regulate hive heat and how they tend, if like if a bee dies, there's actually caretaker bees in a hive that'll take that corpse and pull it to the outside and dump it. Um, there's all these like behavioral, how a hive mechanically works. But when it comes to a bio element, I think it's still anyone's best guess. Another really fascinating thing is the hexagonal shapes. They start with circles, is it? Yeah. When they lay the wax, it actually starts as a circle, but then it settles into a hexagon, which is the most optimum form for storage, which also think is its structural integrity. Right. And it's also stronger. But no one knows why. No one knows why it starts as a, as a circle and ends as a hexagon. And they're all very uniform. They're all equally the same size. Each hexagon is the same size. Yes, it's trippy. Now, depending on contours, if it's in a tree, it, it wavers. But if it's a flat plane, it's the same, which is why you see the hives that have the frames, which is what we use, so it's consistent. If you think about your product and honey, it has played an important role in almost every culture, every religion. It's mentioned in the Vedas as... Oh, yeah. ...as the nectar of the gods... In the Quran, in the Bible, everything, and every other religious text. What are the benefits to our health that we get by consuming honey? So, all honey is antimicrobial, antifungal, antihistamines. It has a ton of vitamins A, B, zinc. Yeah, it's hydrophobic as well, which is what gives it its antimicrobial factors. What is hydrophobic? There's, so there's not enough moisture in honey for any pathogens or anything to live in. So when you say it's antimicrobial, antifungal, antibacterial, that's because there's not enough moisture in the actual honey for anything to survive. The thing that will contort honey is moisture, and that's when you see crystallization a lot of times. It's also a lot of glucose and fructose. When we look at kind of our audience segmentation, we have a spiritual divinity crowd because of the bees and the sacred geometry of the hexagon. We have an Ayurvedic you know, crowd for the wellness benefits and the history and the heritage. We have a charcuterie crowd because that's where people have had honeycomb in the U.S. on a cheese board or a salami in a cheese board. We have athletes because muscle glycogen depletion is the bonk or the wall. And so we have a natural form of glucose. So people will take it for a pre-workout or mid-workout to extend their endurance. We have a kind of a brain biohacker audience because the brain glucose connection for kind of beating afternoon fog without the crash because naturally produced pure glucose doesn't have the fall off. And with that, we also have a type 1 diabetic community that consumes it because it lifts the blood sugar without the crash. So in lieu of taking like a glucose tab um, or throwing a Snickers bar in their mouth um, and trying to rush to a meal, you can actually have the honeycomb and have a sustained lift until you get to a proper meal. So they manage their lows with it. There's an irony about all these engineered foods that are coming out and these, you know, hyper-focused uses benefits. But really all we have to do is give bees the best flowers to pollinate from and they take care of the rest. We have customers that ask us weekly how we get the honey in the honeycomb, which just I think indicates how far we are from our food sources in America. <laughs> I'm never quite sure how to answer that question because you don't want to make somebody feel really bad, but you're not making that up. No, no, no. It's every week we get a question. It's somewhere online. It comes in. How do you get the honey in there? And it's like, well, <laughs> we don't really do much. Like, or we'll get even, we'll get retail buyers, like grocery store buyers that ask us for our manufacturing process. Like, what? oh, show us all. No, we're, we're a cut pack operation. We cut it and we pack it like you do a berry or a banana. We don't do anything to it. We don't have a process to audit. And we don't have the, the spoilage concern that a banana does. So it's, yeah, it's a funky, 
in a world of highly engineered food, the less we do, the better our product tastes. And that goes back to your original question around how does this create it? It's really a function of the forage zone. And so when we are looking at quality honeycomb as a mission-driven, purpose-led company, it's really about back to honeybee health and healthy ecosystems and then the beekeeper livelihoods because we can't do what we do without managed hives. And that takes beekeepers. We don't have a food system without beekeepers because, again, we're dependent on the managed hives. So as much as bee, you know, honeybees are in decline or there's colony loss, there's beekeeper loss. It's becoming harder and harder to be a beekeeper in the United States. And that's not going to do anyone any good. So we have to tackle it from a, a lot of different angles. But ultimately, it's flowers. So what caused the decline of the honeybees? That's a big question. It's pesticides, it's pathogens, it's stress, it's theft. But the alarming numbers are that commercial beekeepers lose on average 45% of their colonies annually due to any number of factors. If you had a rancher that said that they were losing 45% of their cattle, you'd have a pretty big concern. The same thing happens with bees, but yet for some reason, you know, people are aware of the honeybee, you know, decline. Now, technically honeybee numbers are up, but honey production's down because bee pollination services is a business. It's all very messy currently. I assumed when people talked about honeybees and honeybees pollinating, it was nature doing it. it. I didn't know that there were honey farmers who were moving their honeybees, their hives, you know, between farms to pollinate. So that must be the ignorance on the part of the listener or... Well, it's also, you know, decades of being conditioned to pay less and less for honey. You get it for free at your coffee shop. Like, it's such a nutritionally dense food. It's got all these amazing benefits. You expect it to be free. And that's behavioral from the consumer's perspective. Yeah, educating around honey fraud. And so if you're a beekeeper and you're financially dependent on pollination services... During the off-season, you're basically parking your hive somewhere and feeding them sugar water just to keep them alive so you can take them back to the orchards. And So, like, honey becomes an afterthought because, again, 70% of your income is coming from somewhere else. So now it's just a matter of, like, bees are kept in working conditions because they're just meant to be flying around at an almond orchard or insert monocrop here. It's a complicated problem. And there is no answer either as to what's calling, you know, contributing to what is commonly referred to as colony collapse. It's colony loss is probably a more accurate description. And the loss is coming from a number of different inputs. So you said you were working in this area for the past 15 years. What did you do before that? I've worked in kind of the better for you CPG world. So healthy wellness packaged food brands. So I had a venture capital fund at a private equity group, owned a superfoods company for a while. So I've been in the industry in various functions, and this has truly been my chance to have big impact. Like We are now operating in a global commodity that's incredibly fraudulent, and we have the chance to actually clean up an industry. And that comes through a honeycomb as a unique way to re-educate and reacquaint consumers with honey. Educate about honey fraud, educate about bee, you know, honeybee health. It'd be really hard to tell our story at Pass the Honey if we were in the same size jar looking like the same other honeys to talk about the levels we go to for. I mean, the fact we have a million acres for research in the U.S. is unheard of. It's the largest pollinator effort in the world. Um, and we work with other academic institutions, other landowner partners, other researchers to really kind of get to the root of the problem and understand how to stabilize colonies, both managed and native species. 
that's a big undertaking. So how did you start this? You were doing this, but you didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a beekeeper. What happened? I'm still not a beekeeper. So I owned a superfoods company. So I worked in global commodities. I was aware of honey fraud just because I worked in an industrial commodities capacity. I was getting sick and I was making honey lemon ginger teas and I was putting honey in my honey lemon ginger teas because I wanted the healing benefits. But I was also aware that I wasn't getting the healing benefits because that liquid honey is highly suspect just by the sheer nature that 70% of all liquid honey is fraudulent. Like there's no way for me to tell. I sit here today talking to you and I could not tell you what was a good liquid honey or a non-good liquid honey. It is that suspect still. And people will tell me, oh, I only buy the expensive stuff. And I feel like if you're a fraudster, you're not knocking off a cheap teddy bear. You're knocking off the expensive stuff. So like the higher ticket honeys are actually more fraudulent than your low bottom barrel honeys, which is really just a function of fraud again. I knew I was putting fraudulent honey in my teas and I realized well, I'm just going to get honeycomb because you can't heat honeycomb and you can't blend honeycomb. So at least I know it hasn't been the two more nefarious fraud practices are now off the table. I know it's single origin as well because it's in the comb it came from, right? You can't really fake that. I started eating honeycomb and honeycomb in its kind of pre-existing form was usually in a big brick. And I wasn't eating it in one sitting and it was collecting ants. And so the real innovation, the kind of the moment that I was disappointed in the market was that I was putting fraudulent honey in my system, trying to heal myself knowing I didn't have an alternative and then going to the honeycomb and it was awkward and messy and ants. And, and then, so it was like, well, what if, what if this puts in like a convenient format? What if it was individually portioned? And that's really what took us down the path of past the honey. So your honey comes in honeycomb with the beeswax and everything. All of it. It's just like, it's literally cut from the hive. It's fascinating to me that when I take a bite of our honeycomb or anybody, that whenever a consumer takes a bite of our honeycomb, not a man nor a machine has touched that honey in those cells. A bee pollinated a flower in a field, created honey and put it in there. And it's not like, you don't get that very often in our food system. Like bananas are still cut and processed and washed and things like that. Like there's other handling considerations, but not like in that cell, it is the honey from a bee from a flower. That's just mind boggling to me. And we don't know how they do it, right? Which is even more like, oh, it's delicious. So I've had honey in the honeycomb, but there are different varieties. I've had it, some which were from another country, and they tasted quite easy on the mouth. It wasn't that waxy, but I bought honeycomb, like the bricks, like, you know, the ones which come in a brick at the local grocery store. And I've never been able to eat it successfully because there's wax after I've chewed on the honeycomb. Does your product also have the same texture or is it different? So every honey and honeycomb will be different based on the terroir. It's very similar to wine, you know, based on what the ecosystem is, based on temperatures, based on forage zone, forage makeup, you're going to get variances. Again, very similar to wine. Now, we worked pretty hard, not testing per se, but a lot of trial and error to figure out what the optimum cut was. So if we cut our comb a little smaller, it's mostly wax. We cut it a little bigger, it's a lot of honey. So we kind of worked with that. What's that, for us, what's an optimum mouthfeel? That's the level of science we went to, is just, you know, what feels good? What's too much wax? What's too little? We like this, run with it. And the wax is okay to eat. Oh yeah, the honeycomb is entirely edible. Some people swallow it, some people spit it. It's kind of like seeds. Some people eat the whole apple core. I don't, but some people do. I've had to really unlearn a lot of my consumer packaged goods history and realize that we're in a commodity. The more I think of this product like a banana, 
if you ask yourself, who's the audience for honeycomb? Well, who's the audience for cacao? Like, who's the audience for a berry? It's pretty broad. And then people ask, well, how do you use it? Well, you can put it in yogurt. You can eat it raw. You can put it on toast. You can melt it in tea. Again, think of it like a banana. It's got broad audience and broad uses, which goes back to the fact that we're a commodity. Like that's, we are a cut pack operation. We don't do anything. We just give the bees the best locations possible and we tend them to the best of our abilities and we pay premium prices to our beekeepers so they can have you know, an increase in livelihood and we try to educate the consumer as to why they should pay what they pay because fraudulent honey has a cost. So explain to us what exactly is your business model. So you hire beekeepers? We are a vertically integrated honeycomb company. And that is where we have currently establishing direct relationships, co-ownership of apiaries, co-ownership of processing facilities. And for us, it's cut pack, but there's also the liquid and the wax that will take some processing. That is the business model. And it's really the, the reason for it is that if global honey is 70% fraudulent, you know, we're going to carve a path in the unadulterated regenerative honey. You know, we think there is value for paying fairer prices for our raw ingredients. We think there's value in regenerative practices in the marketplace. Um, there's value in having a pure non-fraudulent product. So that's really the lane we stay in is unadulterated, regeneratively sourced honeycomb. And by lieu of honeycomb, it's the byproducts of liquid and wax. Liquid being used in consumer goods, food, and wax being used in consumer goods, cosmetics. That's the, the business. And the important thing about your honeycomb is that they are sold in individual packs so that it can be used as when needed basis. And you have cut it optimally, the ratio of the wax to the honey. It's about three centimeters cubed, 20 to 25 grams. That, that tends to be the sweet spot for us. No pun intended. The individual portions is pretty interesting that this is going to get a little new, not nuanced, but a little more kind of in the, in the inside baseball, if you will. Honeycomb doesn't sell in the United States. It is not a big mover. It is kind of an unknown item. And when you put something in a convenient individual format, it encourages trial. Like if you don't know what honeycomb is and you don't know how to eat it and you don't know the benefits of it, you don't know if, what to do with the wax, are you going to spend $30 on a brick? No, no way. Would you spend, you know, $650 to try it? Perhaps. And that's really that individual portion, that kind of convenience format allows us to extend the audience and educate people on honeycomb. And that, by, if we can get the honeycomb conversation started, we can get the honey fraud, we can get the regenerative apiculture conversations going, we can start to reacclimate the U.S. consumer so we don't get questions like, how do you get the honey in there? They go, they'll just know that a bee does it. That, that would be a win for us. The individual packaging idea, was it from your time in the packaged goods industry or packaged foods industry? No, it was more a function of me. At the time, I was single and I was not using it all. And I would leave it on the counter and it would attract ants. And the minute I put it in the fridge, it would become literally a brick. And so I was just wasting and I didn't like, there was no point in waste. I was like, well, why is it just, yeah, I don't know if it's real innovation or aha moments here, but it was just, that doesn't make sense. I don't need that much. I don't buy two liter things of anything because I don't drink that much, whatever it is in a two liter bottle. It was really just a function of not wanting to be wasteful. So part of what you do, you said you have a million acres and that's part of your regenerative apiculture working group. Who are the stakeholders that you bring together in this group? So we have two initiatives, if you will. We have our regenerative honeycomb initiative, 
which is what is tied to our 1.1 million acres. And that is partnerships with research institutions, academic institutions, large private landowners, and then ourselves. And that is an effort to research managed hives and native species, be honeybee health, beekeeper livelihoods, economic or ecological diversity, really understanding what's going on. And that's under our, our umbrella. Now, as part of that kind of in, in parallel, we have the Regenerative Apiculture Working Group, and that's where we have retailers, landowners, academic institutions, other brand owners, anybody who has an interest in liquid, wax, or regenerative agriculture is part of that working group. And that working group is really what's informing the marketplace on better beekeeping practices, better honey, the unadulterated regenerative honey, what that means to the consumer. So that's more of a consumer-facing group, whereas the Regenerative Honeycomb Initiative is a research, you know, that's part of our supply chain effort. So is that a nonprofit which is associated with your company, or is it completely separate? It is with the company. We don't have a nonprofit arm. It's tax laws are weird. We can't own the land and do research and diversify ecosystems and get tax benefits if we have a commercial interest. I'm still figuring that part out. Plus, I don't have the money to, quite frankly, go buy a million acres of land. So there are other interested parties that have reason to be participating. So what were the goals of this working group? So the goals, the working group or the, the Regenerative Honeycomb Initiative, the land or the group? Let's start with the group. The group is to understand, let's say we have another CPG company and they're buying liquid honey. They are aware that there is a high level of fraud and it's highly suspect. So we work with them to understand what their specifications would need for their application and what they would be requiring from a reporting, from a standards, from a food safety perspective. And then we make sure that when we're building the regenerative standards and practices for the industry, that we take those considerations in and we make sure that if we're going to set new regenerative standards kind of above and beyond organic, that they are accommodating the actual buyers. For a retailer, it's how do you communicate regenerative anything to the consumer? It's an unknown area. It's kind of like organic 20 years ago. What does that mean? You know, from the research angle, they have all kinds of things they want to research, you know, how bees communicate, how they create wax, you know, all these other questions that you asked earlier. From our perspective, it's to really be a steward of the conversation because it's not just our needs. It's, you know, we, we're only a buyer of so much honeycomb, but we have the ability to gather a group of people to have a broader conversation, to educate the marketplace, both from a commercial perspective to other brand owners and to the consumer side. If you look at like the Regenerative Honeycomb Initiative and the Regenerative Apiculture Working Group, one is the supply side, which is the, the land acreage, and one's the demand side, kind of in a... In a a layman's term. So we're kind of hitting it from both. How far have you achieved some of the goals that you set for yourself and these groups? I am absolutely shocked at how far we've come in such a short time. Our goal was 7 million acres of research in 15 years. We got a million one in less than a year and a half. And then when that starts to prove itself out, it's actually leading to more acreage. So we have line of sight on 13 million acres, which is just unfathomable. If I took myself back two years, I never would have thought. I thought it was a big, hairy, audacious goal. It turns out it goes back to that elegance, like the best product comes from the best landscapes and the best beekeeping practices. So all we have to do is make sure we have the best landscapes and the best beekeeping practices, and we automatically get the best product. And then it's like, well, then how do you communicate that to the consumers? And the level on the regenerative apiculture working group, I never would have guessed we'd be working with UC Davis and other academic institutions on literal leadership conversation. I didn't realize there was such a demand for 
from even the consumer side to put real merit behind the save the bees verbiage. A lot of brands say save the bees, but it just is greenwashing and that's sad. So to be able to support like research-based and measure change and measure impact, both for you know, honeybee health and beekeeper livelihoods and the, the healthy ecosystems, that's a pretty cool thing to be doing every day. So if you had to tell our listener how they could buy authentic honey, the only way they can buy authentic honey for now is if it is in the honeycomb, in your opinion. That's the, uh, quite frankly, the only honey you can trust is a honeycomb. And even then it's difficult because of the radius that bees fly. Local honeys have a lot of pesticides in it. Local honeys have a lot of car exhaust in it. It's just, again, bees fly six miles. It's really hard to validate that radius. This is something I did not know, and I'm still getting clarity around, but there are no USDA standards for honey production to organic. Like there is no organic certification in the USDA man, like standards and practices for organic. It is definitively says there are no standards for honey, but yet you see organic labeling on honey because there's no enforcement or it's some other country that is somehow said that they're meeting our standards, but our standards don't exist. So I've asked directly to our contacts, at least at the USDA is how does this exist? If, if there's a country that's saying organic, that they're meeting our standards, but our standards still don't aren't on the books. There's no, there's no laws on the books on this one. So how are they meeting standards that don't exist? And it just, I can't get a clear answer on it, which again, just goes back to the sheer size of the problem that bees are classified as livestock. They fly six miles. You have to be able to control the area it's around to some degree, which is why our acreage is basically timberland and forest. It's so far removed from any sort of agricultural use that we had to do it. Yeah. And we looked at weather patterns and GIS data, then access roads. And there's just, it took us a year and a half to even identify the 10 locations on our million acres that we could actually put an apiary on to do research. Back to your question is how do you tell consumers? One, honeycomb can be trusted. It can't be heated, can't be blended. So there's one nefarious thing off the table, but then you got to be real particular around, you know, if you ask the beekeeper, where are your hives located? Do you transport those hives around? It might come from 10 miles away from San Diego in central California, or I guess East County, and it could be super remote, but then all of a sudden they tell you that they actually take their bees to, you know, the almond orchards every season. There goes the honey, right? Ask more questions around where the hives are located, are they transported, and just buy the comb. What are your next steps beside acquiring more of the acreage? I'm most excited about our next steps. It's really the developing direct relationships with beekeepers globally. You know, we have an opportunity to bring premium pricing to what's been declining pricing for decades. So for us to work with groups in Mexico and Canada and Morocco and Sierra Leone and Kenya and Australia, and be able to educate those beekeepers to what regenerative standards are. So there's marketplace value and then be able to pay a premium for that product is pretty cool that true vertical integration. We're just now in that initial stage. That's real impact and real transparency and real chain of custody, which are also very valuable when you have a highly fraudulent commodity. So how can this fraud be addressed? How can these fraudsters be brought to task? As a consumer, is there nobody watching out for me? The answer is no, there's not. There's no enforcement from federal agencies on honey. There are consumer groups that have filed class action lawsuits. Currently, as far as I'm aware, there is RICO charges, which is racketeering influence and corrupt organizations. It's an act that actually brought down the mob in New York. 
There are RICO charges against the top six U.S. producers of honey and True Source Honey, which was a qualifying agency that was you know, qualifying fraudulent honey. Honey is also the fifth way to launder money globally. When you ask about who can look out for consumers, it's education, which is where we come in. You know, kind of our one of our roles is educating on honey fraud, better practices. And a lot of times it's making sure the customers are asking the right questions of their honey producers. Yeah, it's a really tough world to navigate. When you have a racketeering charge against the major players and there's very little testing that can actually find adulteration, like we have to use nuclear magnetic resonance testing, which is essentially an MRI for food that breaks down the molecular structure of the honey to validate it's not been adulterated. Then we actually take the pollen in the honey and we match it against a DNA library to validate it's from the regions we're being told it's from. There's only certain regions we want to source from our vendors because we have to make sure it's not downwind from industry, you know, agricultural uses, all these other considerations. So I never thought that we'd have to go to these links to just buy clean honeycomb. There's not a single seller in the U.S. that would sell me bulk honeycomb because the pesticides that bioaccumulate in wax. It's a huge problem that the consumer is just not generally aware of. So when you take a piece of the honeycomb, do you take away the home? Does it, are you destroying that? Because some vegan groups don't eat honey. I'm vegetarian and I eat honey, but there are some groups who don't. Why do they do that? Well, part of our regenerative practices is that we only source 20% of the honey storage annually. So we're never taking too much honey for the hives to, they won't collapse. It, it actually generates hive activity. So we're very particular on how much honey we will take seasonally. Now, the question around vegans and honey, it seems to be 50-50. I'm not certain what the argument for not eating honey is. It's not a reproductive organ. It's not part of their breeding. It's literally excess food storage that they've created. So I don't know. I can't seem to get clarity on that, but it is 50-50. Wishing you all the best, Douglas. Thank you so much for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.